Dr. Ryan Stanton here, and it's time for some ASAP Frontline. Uh, today, another uh, special grab for you guys, somebody that I've actually heard on other podcasts and uh, and heard him talking uh, sepsis and thought, man, I've got to get that because it's something that I need information on. Um, we've actually had a podcast released December of 2016, and interestingly, it's actually changed a little bit since then. And so I brought uh, Dr. Uh, Jeremy on to the Frontline podcast um, to talk about some of the sepsis guidelines and what has changed and uh, really more than anything get that foundation put some walls on it put some nice uh, put some nice covering and then uh, see what the uh, Q sofa looks like when we get it placed in front of the fireplace he's an attending physician at Brigham and Women's in Boston one of my favorite cities and teaches at Harvard Medical School co-host of the Foamcast Another fantastic one out there, uh, combining cutting-edge, free, open-access medical education and core content with Lauren. Is it Westoffer? See, I say I'm from the South, and so I say I, I, I have to pronounce every single letter out there. Well, so. she's from the South, too, and she has no idea how to say anything. So trust me, we're on good turf here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I got into sepsis because one of my early mentors as a resident, Scott Weingart, was also very obsessed with sepsis. And as I got to know Scott and I got to know the sort of the world of of, uh, free open access medical education and blogs, I realized that Scott loves to podcast, but he hates to write. So he knew that I like to write. And we, we combined on a couple of articles together. But I ended up doing kind of a deep dive because every time I would read something new about sepsis, I realized, well, you know, before I became, uh, you know, an active member of the field, other stuff happened. Actually, things happened before us, in, like history. And I wanted to know what happened and why and what the development was so that I could really understand where we're headed and in some cases, hopefully advocate for some course correction. So that's how I got into it. And um, we've published, Lauren and I have published a couple of podcasts on this. Scott and I have a couple articles. I've written about it uh, for mainstream too. But let me just kind of start, I think will be helpful, just to give everyone a framework of what's happened the past 20 years. I think, would that be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Bring it on. I, that, that's, you know, it's one of those things, looking at this topic, it's almost like watching the evolution from fish to chimpanzee before our eyes during our careers. And we have people practicing now that are all ends of that spectrum coming in. And so I think understanding where we've come from, what motivated that can really help us understand where we are now, because it is a topic that's changing right before our eyes. Right. And the emergency department became sort of a major locus for sepsis pretty much during you know the past 20 years. So in the 1990s, basically, if you had sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, and you were in the emergency department, basically you were, were going to die unless an ICU person took notice of you and resuscitated you. We were not, we were not good, uh, I, I think, as a field. There were some docs who were on it, but others were not. And no other than Manny Rivers recognized that and really... It was because of a personal experience in his life where I think he almost lost a loved one. He realized, wait a minute, we need to be doing critical care in the emergency department. And that really was what the early gold-directed therapy trial was about. It was about getting septic patients identified and resuscitated wherever they may be. 
And what Dr. Rivers found was if you did that, you saved a lot of lives. And so early goal-directed therapy became sort of the gold standard for sepsis care during the 2000s. And for those of us who've never really had to do early goal-directed therapy, we just kind of have a vague idea of what it, what it is. But really, it's a very rigid protocol. It's kind of brilliant. And you optimize different goals. You optimize uh, your map, your CVP, uh, your, you know, all these different things. And, and depending on uh, where the patient is and whether they've met their goals, you progress to the next step. You transfuse blood if, if they're below a certain threshold. And basically, by doing this, um, you, you had a better outcome. And from that the whole idea of protocols for sepsis really took off. And that's where the Surviving Sepsis Campaign came in, which, as you know, Ryan, is basically uh, a group of people who basically have been advocating for better sepsis care from the get-go. And there's been some controversy over the years. not going to dive into that. But uh, in the early 2000s, they said, look, let's, let's really take Dr. Rivers' work and bring it to a, a larger number of people. Are, are you with me so far? Absolutely. So we've made it uh, into the early 2000s. So we've survived the potential glitch of the two th- of the year 2000, and now we're moving into the current frame of history. Right. So then, for the for first decade of, of this century, it was sort of that was sort of what was going on. But people started to realize that you didn't have to do all of early goal directed therapy to get those better outcomes. You just had to identify the sick patients, resuscitate them with fluids, get them antibiotics in some window, maybe three hours. Um, and not all of them needed that crazy sort of in, in vents, intensivist approach. You didn't need to put a line in every patient. And so the, the Alan Jones trial was a big sort of change in that, showing that, look, you don't really need these, these um, big pharma um, devices to measure you know, your central venous oxygen. You can actually just use lactate. And so this was a big sort of push forward. And what happened was then because of that, people wanted to know, okay, look, what, what matters? What matters? So then in the sort of beginning of this decade, you had a bunch of groups, you had three groups uh, internationally looking at early goal-directed therapy versus other things, either a protocol that was similar to uh, early goal-directed therapy but not as invasive. That was the process trial. And uh, and then you had the Promise and Arise trial, which were in the UK and Australia, and those were comparing early goal-directed therapy to just basically usual care. In other words, the doctor who knows how to find sepsis, once you identify them, treat them. And what, what those three trials, Process, Promise, and Arise, showed was that really you didn't have to do the most invasive parts as a protocol. Many of the patients ended up getting some of that at times, but basically physician discretion was back in vogue, which is nice because we like to be doctors, not like, you know, cookie cutter, follow the dots. Oh, absolutely. And that, so now we're talking about the last two to three years, and this is when it really seems to crank up with those those trials. And then, you know, now we're going to let the government get into it and, and several more manifestations. So let's get the the last few years, the fast forward version of sepsis. Yeah. So then what happened was the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services got very interested in a CMS, in, in a CMS measure, a quality measure, which would eventually mean, doesn't mean now, but it would eventually mean that whether or not you adhere to their protocol, uh, which is supposed to be evidence-based, your hospital could be judged on that. Or in, in some cases, it, if the measure was around for long enough, uh, it could actually be adopted into reimbursement. So if you didn't do the CMS protocol, but your patient lived, you would still not get reimbursed. So you could, you could have a patient die and follow the protocol, and CMS would say, hey, thanks, that was great. Great job. Yeah, and you could have a patient live who really you did a fantastic job, but you saved their life, but you forgot about the blood cultures and you will not get reimbursed. And it's really granular. In, in fact, it's such a cookie cutter. If you draw blood cultures one minute after administering IV antibiotics, you would fail the CMS measure. So that's the level of granularity that they got into. And needless to say, people aren't happy about that. 
Um, I just lost your video, by the way. That's okay. I'm get, I'm getting a I'm getting a phone call right now, so uh, it will clear up here in just a moment. Okay, we can cut this little part out easily, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I do a lot of editing on my show. Um, okay, I'll just keep going. Um, yeah, go ahead. There we go. All right. So CMS at this point rolls out this measure. It's very controversial, and at the moment they're just collecting data. That's all we know so far. But the problem is that they use a very specific definition of sepsis, which is the one basically from the 90s and 2000s, which is the idea of SIRS, a source, and in their view, a lactate of two or higher, which is very interesting because all the trials, mm -hmm. early goal-directed therapy, process, promise, arise, all used four. And that's a whole different thing. So basically now CMS is saying you must do cookie cutter medicine on patients with SIRS, a suspected infection, a lactate greater than two, and you must do it our way. But then you know, that's controversial, of course. We, we could argue about why that's good or bad from here into eternity. And I can tell you that I think that there's a lot of bad to it, but there's some good. Um, and then out of kind of out of the blue, for those of us who aren't insiders, um, one year ago, the uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society, the, the European uh, analog to that, came out with new sepsis definitions, sepsis 3.0, which you covered on this show. And what I'll tell you is those definitions are a cognitive change that everyone really has to understand because they're, they're actually a wonderful cognitive change. And I think what you did say on your show was that it's really about distinguishing the sick patients from the not sick or the, the, the regulated immune response to the dysregulated. I mean, if you, mm -hmm. have, if you have a cold, if you have a, a flu-like virus, your body's immune response is to generate a fever. It's to generate tachycardia. That is an appropriate immune response, and that's good. I'd be worried if you didn't. But what sepsis is, is a, dysregula a dysregulated uh, response that's so bad that, you know, our, our capillaries get leaky and we start having organ damage. It's not bacteremia that's killing us. It's our own dysregulated response that basically drives us down the drain. And so the sepsis definition that the, uh, that the SCCM came out with is, is a dysregulated host response to infection that causes life-threatening organ, uh, organ dysfunction. Uh, that's the sepsis definition. Now, how do you meet the criteria for that is so fascinating. I'm going to stop and say what it is because it's shocking. You can only say someone had sepsis under this regime if the patient died because of the infection or they spent more than 72 hours in an ICU. So actually, if, you th if you're thinking, wait, can I diagnose sepsis as an emergency physician in the ED? The answer is not under these guidelines, not, not like this. Mm -hmm. So we're kinda, we were kind of left out of that. So, um, and then there's also their definition of septic shock, which is basically the subset of those patients who basically require vasopressors and make a little lactate of two or more after fluids. That's your septic shock folks. And they define that as the subset of people who we're just so likely to, we're more likely to die because of sepsis, 40%. So those are your sort of 3.0 sepsis um, criteria. But again, I wanted to point out, okay, death we can all agree upon, right? That's a that's a pretty right. important outcome. But that's I'm very important. Yeah, I'm not sure that three days in the ICU is a gold standard definition. What if it's 2.4 and they happen to have like a really kick-ass resuscitationist or, or, or you're at a hospital that step-down unit can really take care of a patient doing well. All mm -hmm. of a sudden, this patient didn't have sepsis. I, I would actually argue that we can't, this definition doesn't tell us physiology. But what I like about it is that it really does a wonderful job of helping us differentiate the sick patients from the ones who are pseudo-sick. Like they got sick for because for, they got a cold or whatever, and they're going to do fine. Well, that's, that's a good point. I mean, definitely on the ICU aspect. I've worked in hospitals where... You have to be basically intubated to be in the ICU, 
And then I've worked in those where any abnormality in vital signs, you know, basically you just have to be sicker than the random person walking down the street to not end up in the ICU. And then, you know, the bigger challenge now that for a lot of our hospitals and a lot of our uh, physicians and especially on the ICU side is the ICU stays are being prolonged because there's not floor beds available to get them out. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that this can fudge the numbers in a you know, good way if you're very generous at putting people in the ICU that are going to survive anyway versus in a bad way for those that um, those that you're kicking out any that, that are actually looking somewhat better. So I, I completely agree, and especially for us in the emergency room, we've got to have some sort of guidelines or measures for us to really amp up that identification, um, early identification and getting those therapies, uh, th- therapies on board. And so after sepsis 3.0, and that's what we discussed on that December edition of ACE Up Frontline, we've even had more changes since then. I mean, there's been quite a bit of changes in 2017, and this thing has just gotten started. Right. So first of all, I just want to just respond to what you said, which is a great point, which is depending on who you deem to be septic can really change your your data, right? So and I'm, I'm a little skeptical that it's the protocols that have made the huge difference in, in our improvement of sepsis care. I think what it is is we as a field have just gotten, have become better resuscitationists. And the, the proof there is the denominator. So the denominator for sepsis went way up in the 2000s because they started including people with, you know, a very, like, low-grade pneumonia as sepsis. And that's something that, you know, it's, that's questionable, right? Because it's, it's unclear to me whether that person had sepsis. But anyway, getting to 2017, you've got a couple of new things that have happened just the past month. And one of them is a guideline from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And also, kind of at the same time, interestingly enough, uh, is the first prospective look at QSOFA. And so we kind of we kind of skipped over what QSOFA is, I think, when I was talking about the sepsis 3.0 definitions. And as we mentioned, the definitions themselves are very qualitative. Like, do they are they sick enough to have organ dysfunction? Are they going to die in the ICU? But how do you actually know in the ED to look for this thing? And what the, what the sepsis 3.0 group said was, look, SIRS is just too clunky. It's just, it's too big of a net. It's, it, it's too, it's sensitive, but it's so not specific that we shouldn't be enrolling them in these terribly uh, invasive protocols and in the, in throwing, you know, imipenem and all these people just because they have SIRS. So we need something better because stewardship is a major problem. We're going to really get bit in the tail if we don't do something about stewardship. So the idea was how do we identify sepsis or how do we identify people at risk for sepsis? And that's what QSOFA was. And QSOFA was a three-item screen, basically says, is the patient hypotensive? Do they have altered mental status? And uh, is, there, is their respiratory rate more than like, 22? And this is all done retrospectively. So it's like, oh, well, no, one counts, no one counts breathing rates. Well, it, it was done actually retrospectively, which picks that up. It's like any time a nurse right. put 24 in, that patient was actually sick as hell. So it's like, okay, I, I get that we don't count respiratory rates, but in the, in the computer charts, like, it sort of reflects that. We, we sort of do it ourselves. So um, now the question is, is, how does QSOFA perform prospectively? And there's actually new data on that. I've, I've liked, you know, ever since I've heard the discussions of QSOFA, and I've heard you and Scott talk about that on the MCRIT podcast, you know, it seems so much more uh, of, a, of a focused, uh, realistic thing, as opposed to what we'd had in the past, especially with SIRS, which everybody screened in. And, you know, we were talking about it before we started recording that, not, you know, during flu season, um, you know, everybody meets 
sepsis criteria based on what we've had in the past. And honestly, in my emergency department, everybody who walks from the parking garage and gets their, gets their vitals done meets sepsis criteria. I mean, I've got ankle pains that are meeting sepsis criteria and have somebody coming up and saying, do you want us to activate sepsis protocol? It's like, no, I want you to get an x-ray of the ankle. And then I want them to go home. Uh, it's, I, I think we're finally starting to get to the point where we're starting to focus on the changes that matter. I mean, goal being to identify, quickly identify the bacterial issues, the bacterial septic issues, as opposed to these viral syndromes, which are rampant this time, uh, this time of year. Um, and so, you know, I think looking at QSOF, it seems like something that's a little bit better in emergency medicine. So what's the best way for us to you know, implement that, um, and maybe we can get to that, is the implementation of these new updates and changes into what we're already doing, because most hospitals like mine already have a, um, a sepsis criteria and sepsis program in place, and they will likely lag in their recommendations for another six months of the year, I'm sure. Yeah, and let me, I have so much to say to what you just said, which is so excellent. I gave a talk about sepsis um, to a, a group of docs uh, at the United Nations, and they said, you, you would want us to give uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics for SIRS who look sick? I, I, where I come from, that's malaria. So how can you mm-hmm. possibly tell me? You know, and then the Infectious Disease Society of America said, wait a minute, you know, CMS, you can't tell us to give uh, broad-spectrum antimicrobials when I think it's C. diff. That's the cause of their problem. Not the, right. So there's lots of little ways to, to slice this, the, the, you know, to skin this cat. Um, so before I kind of comment about how to use QSOFA, because I think that is the question, like, what do we do? Oh, my right. gosh. Like, what do we do? Before before I come to that, I just want to kind of briefly uh, round up the sort of history that I was going through and say that, that a year later, a year after the sepsis 3.0 recommendation, uh, new definitions came out, the surviving sepsis campaign came out with their recommendations. Um, they're sort of uh, every four years, they do a, an update on their sepsis guidelines. And what's amazing is, you know, a couple of... of sort of, you know, front page news kind of thing. First of all, that they finally said, look, early goal directed therapy is not the the approach that we recommend. And that's amazing because they were all about protocols. This, the whole thing came out of the the uh, Institute of Medicine kind of approach that to error is human and we need checklists. So for them to say, you know what, protocols, yeah, you don't need them. Um, or you don't need this rigid protocol was kind of an amazing moment that sort of that sort of gestalt caught up with protocols. That's good for us, I think. Um, and the other thing that they, they came out with, and this is a little more debatable, is that they have this aspirational thing. We'd like to see antibiotics going in within an hour. And I'd say that's dangerous because with patients that we would call septic now on the new definitions versus severe sepsis in the old definitions, these patients, there's tons of evidence to show that we don't need to be giving them broad-spectrum antibiotics within an hour. It's not like that the amount of time that goes by for them matters in the short, short term in a few hours. Septic shock, Yes. Like, time is important. You need to get antibiotics for septic shock. And if you don't know what you're treating, for goodness sake, treat big. Go big. But severe mm-hmm. sepsis, we know from the data, uh, most of the trials, there's a couple of a couple of so-so papers that sort of maybe one, maybe one that sort of contradicts this, says, look, you know, you got to get antibiotics in early for severe sepsis. But for the most part, actually, the data is not there. And we've been through this with pneumonia. We know that giving antibiotics to anyone who's possibly could have pneumonia is bad. So we want to be careful with that. So surviving sepsis campaign came out. They also said a third thing, which is, okay, yes, we're aware of the sepsis 3.0 definitions, and we acknowledge them. They, they took on the dysregulated immune thing. 
but this is kind of interesting. They didn't comment on the clinical criteria. They didn't say SOFA, QSOFA, SIRS, no SIRS, lactate, no lactate. They totally punted. And I get it because every time they do something, something changes a week later. And so they said, right. forget it. Uh, interestingly enough, in the uh, in an accompanying paper that they put out, uh, kind of to go with the main recommendation, they do still refer to the sort of Manny Rivers criteria, which you know it's fine. It's not it's not a bad way to look at sepsis, but it's just even they are having trouble deciding what how to how to find sepsis. And so, how the heck do we find sepsis? And so you're saying QSOFA is seems better than SIRS, and I, I mean it does in a sense. And and and, and I'm going to be devil's advocate. QSOFA is not quite sensitive enough. Okay, the right, right. The perspective it may, just, it may just the opposite. I mean, we're we're swinging both ends of the spectrum when we talk SIRS versus QSOFA. We're we're being, you know, too light versus yeah, you know, way too sensitive. And remarkably, QSOFA does incredibly well in the uh, at, at finding patients who are at risk of dying. So this new paper that came out from Freund et al. It's in JAMA. It's prospective validation of the clinical criteria. They actually said it's for the clinical criteria for sepsis. Actually, QSOFA is not a clinical criteria for sepsis. It's a marker for investigation. That's what they always wanted it to be. Was it was supposed to be like an, it was supposed to be the red flag, right? And what they found was that QSOFA has a wonderful area under the curve. So in other words, it, it, it picks up so much sepsis and it rules out so much sepsis. It's, a, it's far better than anything we've got. It's better than SIRS. It's better than SOFA, which is the sequential organ failure assessment score, which has like 10 things. You have to have all these different lab values. QSOFA outperforms SOFA, which is amazing. And it's not quite as sensitive as SIRS, but it's far more specific, obviously. And actually, this is kind of interesting, too. QSOFA is much better than the old definition of severe sepsis for picking up death in, in long ICU stays. So and this paper showed a lot of things. Um, basically, that in the emergency department, uh, QSOFA is, is probably your best sort of, if you had to pick one thing, I'd, I'd say, you know, QSOFA. But then the question is, because QSOFA is only 70% specific, what do you do to not miss those other 30%, which is pretty big? And so that's when you get to sort of like the, well, what the hell do I do now, right? And that's, it's the hard definition, though, because there is so much that mimics it and looks like it that, you know, I think... Just like with heart, you know, getting down to a 0% miss rate is going to kill more people than we save with us trying to go after things. And I know that with these criteria, we're talking about hitting people in broad spectrum antibiotics. And in fact, you hit, you hit on it a little bit with, you know, the, you know, we don't want to hit C. diff with broad spectrum antibiotics because, and that one's close to me because I've had a couple of family members that ended up with C. diff when over, over treated with antibiotics. And you've got somebody that's sepsis, but it's clearly from a urinary origin, or you have sepsis and it's clearly, um, you know, strep or pneumonia-based origin. So, you know, instead of going broad spectrum, you know, considering more narrow targeted uh, spectrum or, or targeted therapies, and yet that may make us fall out of some of these some of these type things, especially in my hospital where it says it's going to be zosin and vanc or mirapenem. You know, so you're going to go up and you're going to swing for a home run when maybe what you just need is a base hit in right. order and to I, get somebody around. Right, and I think that it's very important that a lot of the sepsis protocols that, that you're describing that a lot of hospitals have is, oh, they're SIRS and they, they might have a source. I don't really know, so we've got to get antibiotics in. And so before anything else happens, they get antibiotics as if 60 minutes or 45 minutes is going to make a difference on a patient who looks well. 
That's not true. Mm-hmm. That is true on a patient who is actively dying and is like in shock. Yeah, get him. Please just like hit him with the broadest thing you've got. But for the patient who looks pretty good, you even if you want to follow CMS, which is like a really rigid protocol, you've got three hours. You, you know, you, you've got time. And it's not just because we're lazy I'm saying that. I'm not saying that, oh, you got to take your time, like, you know, take a lunch break. No, I'm saying like as a thoughtful clinician, tailor your treatment to what they've got. So if, if you have a patient coming from a nursing home who doesn't look so great, but they're not, they're not like on death's doorstep per se. And I would rather you take time to discover that, oh, look, they actually do have a really bad uh, cellulitis that I need to treat as a soft tissue skin infection that's, that's severe. And I'm going to use the IDSA recommendations for that as opposed to, it's a narrowly tailored treatment, as opposed to just guessing what they've got and hitting them with, you know, one of our biggest guns that it's going to someday be, you know, basically uh, not able to treat anything because it's going to be resistant, you know, a resistance is going to go crazy. So it's, it's not just, it's not laziness, it's good medicine to do a little investigation, to be a doctor. Um, and so what I think the interesting, the interesting cognitive thing is, at, at what point do you start a sepsis protocol? When does a sepsis protocol begin? And for me, it is not vital signs. It just isn't. It's, 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 is, do they look, do they have, do they look infected? Do they have, do they mm-hmm. have Q sofa? Okay. And if the Q sofa is positive, I'm like, I'm going to treat them like they're septic. I'm going to treat them just like they were enrolled in early goal directed therapy trial or, or the process promise and rise. I'm going to treat them. I'm going to work them up. If they're in shock, I'm going to treat them like they're in shock. And if there's, if they're what we used to call severe sepsis, great. That's where Q sofa is if it's positive. If it's negative, then I think I put on my I put on my little thinking hat, my little doctor stethoscope around my shoulders, and go, hmm, are they still sick? Do I actually think this person still has something, or or do they just come from the parking lot and they're out of breath? If I think they're actually sick, then I actually do think about SIRS. I think you know what I need to I need to prove to my team, uh, my nurses or whoever else at the hospital that I got a patient who doesn't look so sick, but I'm a little worried they are. So I actually use SIRS as a safety net when it's QSOFA negative, but I think something's wrong for real. Not not like, you know, they just they, they, they were late and they were running, you know, and they showed up with tachypnea. So there you can use SIRS a little bit of a safety net. SIRS plus your brain is actually decent, right? So and so, and, and then if if they're negative for that, then we're done. You just you, you, you basically you're dealing with someone who's not sick. Um, and if they're positive for that. Uh, I say that with a few exceptions, but with their positive uh, for SIRS, but they were negative QSOFA and you think they're sick, they're back in the same pathway. They're back in the aggressive, get labs, trend the lactate, resuscitate these people with 30 cc's of fluids if their body can handle it. So that's kind of where I go with picking up sepsis patients. So I start with, do they look actually infected? Is QSOFA positive? If so, you know, down the pathway of resuscitation. If it's negative, I think, hmm, am I missing anything? I do check out their SIRS criteria. And then I go into the sort of, you know, I think the best care that we know about, which is 20 to 30 cc's per kg of, of fluids or crystalloids, antibiotics within three hours or one hour of in shock. And, and then there's some details that we can, I'm happy to dive into if, if you care. The, uh, well, you know, I think anybody in the ER can identify when a dumpster's on fire. You know, anybody can walk by and say, wow, that's on fire. Yeah. And, you know, everybody can walk in and, you know, see that kid that's got a temperature of 104, but's bouncing around the room, watching TV, throwing, you know, sticking stickers all over the wall that they're fine. You know, I think the doctoring aspect of this, where the physician side comes in, is that one that may look e right now. You know, it's it's predicting that person that's about to go off the cliff. You know, the one that's about to be really sick. And I, that's what you've touched on is that identifying that person that's not outright 
severe sepsis, you know, fulminant sepsis yet, you know, whatever terms we're going to use, but the ones that they're going to get there very soon. And that's going to be the harder ones to see. That's probably that falling within that 30%, you know, not quite the, you know, probably that's in, in, in that realm right above that 70% that we would catch is the ability for us to identify that set of patients that is going to be more difficult and likely going to get sicker because, you know, we all always catch people on the spectrum of disease. It's never full disease or, or well. It's somewhere along that spectrum of, of wellness and sickness that we tend to see them in the emergency room. Right, and I think that there are little things you pick up that can tell you, hey, something's different here, something's wrong. And I'll give you just a for instance, uh, all these guidelines, by the way, apply to adults, they don't apply to kids. But I, 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 here's a great case that I remember that this kid ended up having sepsis and they didn't know what was going on and they ended up um, uh, thinking that he might have a pulmonary embolism. And, and so they scanned the kid looking for PEs and they found out the kid had terrible pneumonia that the x-ray and ultrasound missed. I'm not sure they ultrasounded that kid first chest. That would have been pretty cool. But um, my old shop, they did a lot of that. But anyway, they found a terrible pneumonia. And, uh, you know, the kid didn't do very well. Um, and my thought was, wait a minute. If you got a kid who's sort of like looking unwell, who's got like, you know, is tachycardic for some reason, and you're about to do a study you never do. You don't do a PE study on a kid. Well, for goodness sake, think about sepsis. You know, if, if you're like way out of the box, you're doing something totally weird then you've got to think, wait a minute, is it possible that I'm missing sepsis here? Um, so I think that, you know, if you're doing something strange and you don't know why, then, you know, back up and think, wait, is this one of those sort of these occult players that I'm going to miss and, and get burned on? You look at those, I mean, even those, though, I mean, you mentioned, you know, looking at kids, but even adults, you walk in, and if, after a few years in medicine, you walk in and you can tell, you said, something in here is not right. You know, it's that kid that's, you know, kind of looking through you, not at you, the one that you can drop an IV and they don't react, or the adult, you know, that adult that's just, you know, you notice that they're talking slower, taking longer to get their thoughts together than they should be taking to get that. I love that. Um, I love that. The kid who doesn't, who doesn't care about the IV. I think that that's probably that's a, a huge, that's got to be that's like huge. so specific for badness. <laughs> well, that's what, you know, the nurses, when they come and tell me, um, you know, we dropped that IV. He didn't didn't even make a noise. I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, they're excited because they got to put an IV in. In mine, my heart sinks because I know something serious is going on. I mean, if I get if I get my daughters, if they get, they're almost like you know when I take the dog to the vet. You know, my kids when they go to the doctors or hospital, they automatically start cowering under chairs and hiding in order to avoid you know knowing something bad's going to happen. So anytime a painful procedure can happen to a kid, you got to be aware of that. Now the the fluids, the fluid, I think, is one of the bigger issues that most physicians, um, you know, ER folks have that fear, you know, of hitting granny at 85 years old with 20 to 30 cc's per kilogram. And I've heard, I've heard on, you know, several podcasts, including Imcrit, you know, give them, you know, as much as they, as, as much as they need and not a drop more. Um, you know, in that debate versus going all out and the push here and saying, you know, I've seen the other, I've heard the other way of them saying, you know, push them with the 20 to 30, even if they have severe lung disease, heart failure, fluid overload, because you can always innovate them. And that's, to me, seems like a very dangerous precedent to, to you know, to have an elderly patient to say, we're, our rescue effort is going to be to put you on the ventilator, knowing that for a lot of them, it, it's they're not going to come off of it. So give me the lowdown of where are we right now? 
with the fluids because as of you know six months ago i was being told every single person no matter what needed that 20 to 30 cc's per kilogram okay so the answer is there's no answer i can tell you the the different versions of this answer that are out there and i can tell you what i'm doing so First of all, the CMS measure, which effectively becomes the law of the land if it becomes part of hospital compare and value-based purchasing, tells you to give the bolus with no exceptions. No exceptions. I don't care if you're pregnant. I don't care if you have an LVAD. I don't care if you have a heart. You know, there's no, there, literally, there's like, there's, for the fluid part of it, there's no exceptions. Um, the other, the, well, the, the one exception is you can actually do shared decision-making with a patient and tell them, and if they actually understand and you document shared decision-making, you can get them out of the protocol. That's actually the best thing you can do. But CMS says, give it, which is crazy, Ryan, because the that's based on the early goal-directed therapy inclusion criteria, right? So Dr. Rivers will tell you, yeah, just innovate them. That's fine. I innovate them all the time. They do. They do fine. Um, and we can, we can, you could debate whether that's like a good risk benefit, and I, I would t- probably share your concern about a little old lady coming off a ventilator. Um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting is in the original early goal-directed therapy trial and process promise and rise, they excluded patients like the ones we're talking about. They excluded patients with like heart failure and, and who might be tipped into a CH, a, a APE, a, you know, flash pulmonary edema. So actually these trials had that concern and said, you know, we better exclude people. But when CMS came around, they said, nah, that's just a little too, that's a little too much choice for the doctors. So forget it. There's no exclusion. So CMS, when that goes into effect, we are screwed. I'm just going to tell you. And and, and we're going to get dinged for not doing it. Um, so that's where we're at in the future if the measure becomes kind of, it's online, but if it, if, it, if it becomes part of statistics and value-based purchasing, okay, rant over on that. So uh, now with respect to the surviving sepsis campaign, which by the way is where the measure came from in the first place, which is kind of crazy, they're saying okay, do 20 to 30 cc's per kg. Um, but they do say, look, this is not like a, a protocol. This is it, it's not cookie cutter medicine. They actually, in their accompanying paper, went out of their way to say, you know what, protocols are good because they help us like kind of stay on track. But please think and, and do let this, let this guideline help you. So if the patient can't take something of this or do, you think they don't really, they won't benefit from it, then don't do it. So surviving sepsis campaign still has the same thing. It says... Um, you know, give the, give the bolus, um, but, you know, be careful um, if you don't want to do it. And they actually, in, in, in one case, the, uh, with a patient with known sepsis-induced ARDS, they actually say, be really careful. They, they really say, don't necessarily bolus them if you don't, if you don't think it's going to work out. And if you think that there's, there's, it's a little bit, the language is a little tight, but I'll tell you that uh, the CMS guideline does not have that uh, caveat. So, um, they're a little the, the the people who led who who actually helped this guideline get 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 put into place are actually coming away from some of the guidelines in it, um, and then there's the question of how much fluids to give. You know, in the Rivers era, people were getting four, five, six liters of fluids. Uh, I think the Alan Jones trial really showed that patients didn't need that much if they got you know you know 20, 30 cc's per kg, and they still were hypotensive. You had really I mean you were supposed to give vasopressors in that situation. For me, I I, I don't always. Um, and it's actually not because of physiology. It's because of resources. Like you say, if I'm going to give pressors, I'm pretty much committing a patient to an ICU because they're going to need a central line after a few hours. We can do peripheral pressors for a few hours. 
um, if it's a good line. But unless they, they're going to come off in two or three hours, they're going to need a central line and then they're going to the unit. So I like to see if I can buy my patient a floor bed by seeing if they're, if they're fluid tolerant. You know, I do a passive leg raise, I'll do an ultrasound. If they can take another liter, I try to see if I can, you know, just sort of treat their numbers, get their map above 65. Uh, just because I'm a little bit... I tend to, my needle for vasopressors is a little bit like more conservative. I don't want to give it unless I have to. Someone like Scott Weingart will tell you, yeah, just give the pressors. They do fine. Scott's a little more aggressive than I am because I think Scott loves to put lines in because he can do it in like 18 <laughs> seconds. And uh, I take, you know, closer to 45 seconds. You know, I'm very, I'm not. Uh, so, um, so basically, um, you know, you can do either approach depending on, you know, what you're comfortable with. But, you know, putting them on a couple hours of, of norepinephrine peripherally, uh, a lot of these patients actually that gives them enough time um, that they don't need the pressors after that. So after the bolus, I, you know, I, I see if they could maybe take another liter. Uh, and if not, then I start the low dose norepinephrine peripherally. And if uh, and we're talking about patients who are basically stable, who aren't crashing, uh, obviously if a patient I think is looking terrible, they, they get, you know, max pressors in the central line and all that. All right. Right. You, you that's, you know, you, that's where I think we need to be. And I mean, I think we need to determine, you know, it's like the, it's like the tree you put in the yard doesn't need water or doesn't need fertilizer. We don't just water it until it, you know, just water to more water to more water to more water. And I think that's where we ended up for a while. And I think we need a little a little bit of prejudice, you know, when we get into these these types things to, you know, to be able to do what our patient needs. I mean, we, there's nothing in medicine that works by giving the patients the same recipe every time you know, no matter who they are, what other comorbid medical conditions. And that's my issue with the CMS guidelines is it's basically saying you all fit into one silo. You all fit there. And thus, we're all going to treat you the same. And I think as emergency physicians, as physicians in general, you realize that the reason, you know, that we have to do what we do and study as much as we do and, and continue to research is the fact that nothing is standard everything everybody's a little bit unique everybody's a little bit different and one person may do great with fluids whereas the other one may need some pressors you know that because they're they're already their tank is already full you know as, as one of my icu attendings used to say is you know fill the tank and squeeze the tank you know making sure that these patients need exactly what they need as opposed to saying okay this is you here's this piece of paper and we're going to go down the check marks yeah, and because honestly, just, that that doesn't take a physician. No, it certainly doesn't. And let me just say that you know this is an ASEP podcast, and ASEP in the end did go ahead. They really fought the CMS measure at many stages, and heroically, I would say, because it, it, it led to a much better measure than the one that was being pushed through. Um, but at the end, they did compromise, and they said, "Okay, we'll get on board with this measure." So currently, ASEP's position is that this measure is okay. I don't 100% agree, guys, you know, listening. Uh, and the reason is because there's 141 elements that you've got to do in this measure, and it's a composite measure. You can't do 140. So ASAP is going to agree with me, I predict, as soon as um, the, the administrators start saying, oh, uh, by the way, we looked at your sepsis care the past six months. Your mortality was fantastic, but you only did 139 of the 141 elements that, that, that CMS requires, and therefore we are now considered the worst hospital in the state. All of a sudden, ASAP's going to go, well, that's terrible because they know we're giving great care. And that's that's when this thing is going to get pushed back. I mean, ASAP's done a great job, but I think on this one, they're waiting to see how hard the measure is to do. And I've got news. It's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's I think a policy, you know, with that in mind would be I mean, it sounds like we actually talked about it a little bit before is. 
you know, we may have to have a little bit of time to take a deep breath and say, wow, where are we really now? I mean, it's, you know, close your eyes and you're in another state, it seems like. And, you know, having something that says here is where we stand as emergency medicine, because even you are saying that there's not the greatest amount of, of emergency medicine contribution into these, you know, into these directions. And yet we're the, probably more and more the primary location for the first several hours of every sepsis uh, evaluation, identification, and resuscitation. Yeah, and I would say the, 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 the take-home message of all the past 20 years can really be summarized the following way. Having a way to identify septic patients saves lives. That's it. Like, you got to have something in place that identifies septic patients that doesn't overtreat septic patients. It doesn't overtreat patients who are not septic, I should say, or gives an opportunity to de-escalate as soon as you realize that they're not in that in that pool. That gives you enough time to figure out who is sick and who is not. That's going to save lives in the short term and decrease the stewardship issues that we know is going to come down the pipeline. We know for every dose of, of broad-spectrum antibiotic you give, there is a linear correlation with resistance. So we are writing our own, you and I, when, Ryan, when we get, we're a little old, but when we get really old, we're going to be SOL because nothing's going to work for us. So I'm actually no, trying to save no. my own life right now by doing some stewardship. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. We're going to be on a, we're going to be on a Darwinian roller coaster by the time we get, by we, by the time we get there, we're talking about untreatable antibiotic, you know, untreatable bacteria, you know, in Colorado and yeah. You know everything we're seeing, and and it's now that's even biting us more. I, I I feel like that I'm seeing more C diff than I've ever seen before, and even in really young people and kids. And yet, you know, there's I think the ER is starting to. I mean, we're I'm I'm off the rails, but you know, I seem in the ER we we we've started to take that bull by the horns and try to be better stewards. But then you have these other patient satisfaction driven um, mm -hmm. clinics settings that. You know, you come in and it's basically, you know, it's a running joke when folks come in and say they went to this place or that place. I said, you know, for an ankle sprain, I said, well, you get your antibiotics. And, you know, the vast majority of flu patients and viral patients are all getting antibiotics. And, you know, we got to do something. We have to. I mean, yeah, and we have to do get to get ahead of this. Or you're right. You and I are going to be, you know, expecting to die like it's the. 1800s because there's nothing that can treat the infections we're getting. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, I've become an advocate, but I haven't really done advocacy per se. But I think if anyone, you know, is listening to this, you know, get on committees and, and, and do these things. Uh, every time a regulation comes up, it's we need ASAP or someone representing EPs to, to speak up. And that's very important. Um, people like the Infectious Disease Society of America and the American Hospital Association were against the CMS measure for sepsis, which is crazy because their whole job is to prevent infections. And so that should tell you that something's amiss. Yeah, and that's, I've always told people at the meetings, you know, doing PR for ASEP and things like that is you're either at the table or you're under the table, especially emergency medicine. You know, we're seeing right now with this battle with insurance companies over out of out of network billing that if, if you're not, you know, they're, everybody's super quick to point the finger at emergency medicine and, and blame us for the problems of medicine. And that's, you know, it's unfortunate. It's because we keep admitting time, patients to the hospital. They're angry at us. <laughs> well, and the fact is a testimony that we are basically the center of health care now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything comes, almost everything, most things come to the emergency department. And so if you're looking for somebody to point the finger at that's not in your own house, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, it's emergency medicine. It wasn't fast enough. It wasn't thorough enough. It wasn't, you know, whatever 
the guideline is. And so definitely when it comes to guidelines that are impacting our practice on a daily basis, we have to be there to let them know what the world is really like. Because so many people, when you're looking at so, at, uh, at sepsis, it's very easy to say, yeah, absolutely. Anybody comes in with these signs should be getting broad spectrum antibiotics. And then, you know, we have to be there to say, yeah, but honestly, 90% of the people who come in with those signs have nothing wrong with them because it's a normal response to seasonal illnesses and things like that. So we, we have to be there for, for setting that picture, painting the rest of the picture, because most people's focus is so narrow that I think they miss out on what real life is about. Yeah, and for me, you know, ending with a little sunshine, which is, you know, I feel like I'm like a rain cloud sometimes on this. I get, I get worked up and angry, and, and people start asking why I'm, I'm diaphoretic. But um, you know, really, I'm, I'm a happy warrior. But, uh, but I will say that, you know, for what you just said, the reasons that you just outlined are the reason why I recruit people to come to be emergency doctors, like medical students. I say we are the center of medicine, and we are the only ones equipped to look at ourselves and the whole field of medicine and say, oh, you know, I work with neurologists, cardiologists, pediatricians. Every day I work with every part of the field. So we stand to be, and we actually are the least conflicted. We don't have a lot of conflicts of interest. We stand to really be the sort of the, the, the priests of medicine if we take, if we take the opportunity, um, both because we know the most about the various fields and because, as you mentioned, we're the epicenter. So I always say, you know, we're the best field and therefore we should be the leading field for all of medicine. Is that why uh, you set this conveniently placed that light right behind your head that makes it look like a halo? Oh, is that it's, yeah? For those who yeah. uh, who can't see the video feed, which is everybody, <laughs> no, that's just so we can't see. Uh, it's actually backlit, so you can't see you know any any imperfections. <laughs> well, it, interestingly, it comes across uh, uh, my my Skype is a uh, nicely placed halo. Speaking of the priests of medicine, yeah, right. So, how can folks get in touch with you if they want more information? Because I think we've got a lot of movement on this. Um, a lot of things we need to do with it, a lot of actions that emergency medicine needs to take. But how can folks get in touch with you, whether by um, email, social media, whatnot, uh, if they have more questions and want more information? Sure. Well, I'm on Twitter, Jeremy Faust, and I am very active there. And my email address is jsfaust at partners.org. And, uh, you know, I'm always you know, very happy to respond to any of these questions and push things along the way. I, I get lots of, uh, you know, feedback saying, oh, really appreciated what you said. Other times, and I'm not kidding, I get accused of, of, of being a purveyor of fake news about sepsis. That's very exciting for me because it feels like I'm really living in the world. So uh, whatever feedback you have, I'm welcome to it. Yeah, fake news. That's, that's all. I mean, it's, you got to get your clickbait up there somewhere. And also, don't be, don't be afraid to contact you. Apparently, you're you know just cruising around looking at your stuff. You're really interested and active in music as well. So, um, pretty awesome, pretty awesome stuff there. Well, it was fun being uh, being on the show and talking to you. All right, and as for us, you can contact me at youreverydaymedicine@gmail.com on Twitter at everydaymed, and then of course the uh, ASAP Frontline Facebook page. A great way to keep up with the weekly episodes of the program. And uh, as for us, until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.